Laura France is a Christie Award winner and best-selling author of more than a dozen historical novels with a special affection for 18th century America. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today on Binge Reading, Laura talks about her latest romance called A Heart Adrift, an American historical about a Virginia chocolatier and a privateering sea captain who collide again after a failed love affair a decade before. We've got our usual free book offer, this time a joint author promo called Relax and Read, a selection of all genres for you to choose from. You'll find the links for how to access these books, plus any other information about this episode, in the show notes on thejoysofbingereading.com. And there's an easy way to make sure you don't miss out. Join our newsletter so you get a weekly reminder of when the show is posted and what's coming next, with links all in one place. But now, here's Laura. Hello there, Laura, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. I'm so delighted to be here. I'm a fan and um, always enjoy talking books. Thank you. Look, you're a best-selling author and an award-winning one with 13 historical novels to your credit. But the most recent one and the one that we'll be focusing on for part of our start time today is A Heart Adrift, set in 1755 when the prospect of war with France is looming over colonial Virginia. Now, you've said that you are a real fan of the 18th century. So what draws you to that time period? Oh, my. I could probably spend the whole show talking about that. But but in a nutshell, the 18th century was just a complete historical roller coaster ride. You know, you there was just so much going on in that uh, century. You have... You know, as you already mentioned, the French and Indian War, it encapsulates also two revolutions, both French and American. The, you know, things like the flintlock musket and Indian warfare came to the forefront during that very tumultuous era. On a more personal note, there was the bed bug epidemic was out of control and personal hygiene was at a low. So they're just, it's just on every level of the 18th century. It's just kind of a hot, roiling, historical mess. But but there were, you know, there were good things that came out of that too, such as people began reading for pleasure books became more accessible. And one of the the things that I actually have included in some of my novels is another invention by Ben Franklin was the Franklin stove. So people began to warm up in a century that had been quite cold. So you have a lot to draw from when you write in the 18th century, not only the United States, but, you know, overseas. And your own history in your own country was actually quite tumultuous too, if I understand. Yeah, we didn't we hardly even were existing in the 18th, but we 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 got into 
the early 19th is when mostly the white people started arriving here. Of course, it's terrible to even think of history starting when the white people arrived because the Maori were here for thousands of years before that. But yeah, so, but you also focus particularly on early American history, don't you? I don't know if you've done any novels outside of America, but the bulk of your work is in when America is being framed as a nation, really, isn't it? It's a nation building. Mm. beautiful way to say it when the when our nation was being framed i do i like i enjoy very much keeping that founding history alive we you know our founding fathers like george washington our founding mothers like martha washington and you know abigail adams and and strong women you know who helped shape history so there's there's a real joy in making that history relevant because i think in i'm seeing a lot of you know our young our younger generations, there's just a disconnect. They don't they don't know much about history. They're just not interested in our history. So one of the joys of writing is trying to make that interesting to readers. And it's also, and I'm sure as a novelist, you can say the same thing. It's you are always learning. It's an ongoing education as a novelist. And I think the reader of historical novels feels that too. So it's really a gift to read and you're you're kind of like, you know, you're amassing this knowledge that you wouldn't have had if you hadn't read. And historicals are wonderful that way. Yeah. Look, it's interesting because there was a personal aspect to this for you as well. One of your direct descendants actually got exiled from Scotland to the American colonies in the 18th century, didn't he? No, exactly. You know, George Hume, I'm the sixth great granddaughter of a a layered or you know he was a titled one of the gentry back in the 18th century he ended up on the wrong side of the war it was a jacobite rebellion of 1715 and he and his uncle and his son one of them were the three of them were exiled after sitting in london prison for a couple of years were exiled to virginia and so i have with Virginia. And then a lot of those Virginians came into Kentucky, which is my, you know, home place. And so I do have a personal connection. I was um, able to write, thanks to my publisher, Ravel, one story that was partially set in Scotland and it involved coming to America like my Humes did. That came out a couple of years ago. And I'm currently just submitted a story set entirely in Scotland based on my human ancestry. So look for that in January of 2023. And the title is The Rose and the Thistle, which I think is lovely. Oh, yes, very appropriate. Look, your books are inspirational, but not in a way that detracts or sort of overwhelms the story. Do you find holding that balance between the inspirational aspect and everything else tricky at times? Not really. You know, it's organic to the story. My faith is Publishers Weekly calls me spiritually subtle. And I probably am. You know, I'm I'm not attracted by, you know, a lot of rel- religiosity, I guess. You know, n- you're not going to see a lot of conversions in my books. There, there, there are those, but they're they're more organic to the story. I think they're more natural. There's there are more a part of the story. It's not something that's just inserted to make a point. You know, we'll just dump in a little spirituality here 
or yeah. there. I don't do that and I don't enjoy that in, in books. One thing that I have going for me probably is the 18th century was a very religious time. People mm-hmm. were very, you know, were very, were quite religious. You know, that was a loose word. You know, you have your Protestants, your Anglicans, your Quakers, you know, you have Native American beliefs, you know, just a lot of different belief systems in the 18th century. But on the whole, almost every part, there were not many atheists or agnostics. That century was kind of baptized in faith. And we've since grown away from that. But so it's quite natural. If you set an 18th century novel, you know, if you tried to to divorce what you're writing from the faith element, I think it would be historically incorrect. Yeah. So it's easy for me. Yeah. Um, to in do the, that. In the Heart of Drift, Esme is a very independent young woman. And that's a theme also in your books, that a lot of your heroines are definitely, you know, independent young women. And some people would see that as slightly unusual for an inspirational book because they sort of have that, if they don't know too much about faith, they might have that idea about Christian wives being very docile and and just having to be submissive and that kind of thing. But your women aren't those sort of women at all, are they? No, my women are strong women. And if you look back historically, there are many of those women, as you say, you know, the docile, subservient, never, you know, make an independent move. And there were many women like that. Women were still sadly thought of as second-class citizens in the 18th century. There were some very strong women like Abigail Adams. She was wife to John Adams, who was a president. She was, uh, you know, a very much an advocate for women's rights. She opposed slavery. She was an advisor to her husband on business and, you know, political matters when he was, you know, president. So there were women like Abigail Adams who were very, had their own mind, had their own beliefs, weren't afraid to speak out, really movers and shakers. I call them the founding mothers. We don't just have the founding fathers. We have the founding mothers in America. And she was one of them. Another one was Deborah Franklin, wife of Benjamin Franklin, who was kind of the entrepreneur who did everything and usually did everything well. She basically, Ben would sail away and leave her and she ran all of his businesses very successfully and even the U.S. postal system at that time. So I think we tend to overlook those women, but I have to credit their men here because their husbands allowed and fostered them to be like that. Yes. So kudos, kudos to the men behind the women and the, the women behind the men. Yes. And in Heart, Heart Adrift, Esme is in love with the sea captain, Henri or Henry, but they are separated by the sea because she doesn't want to be become a sea widow and she holds off from accepting him until he's, a landlubber. And by the time that arrives, the French war is looming and he's being called into service. So there's a very strong element of being parted by what's happening in the, in the world around them as well. Right. Very, you know, and it was interesting writing that because I <clears throat> I don't know a, a lot about the French and Indian War. Some, I think people in Europe call it the Seven Years' War, especially people in England. So it was a very interesting time. Henri, and I love that you pronounced it correctly. I have to think about it sometimes and not call him Henry, but our <laughs> captain, hero, Henri Lennox, is basically the 
prototype or the template for the privateers who eventually became the U.S. Navy. You know, at that time, Britain was the powerhouse and nobody wanted to fight Britain. And he basically was a privateer working, you know, for the British Navy in a sense, although he was independent and helping this expedition against the French in order to thwart the war. So that was a very nice or element to insert between them because that's the kind of conflict that had driven Esme and Henri apart before. And so they both were a bit adrift and they have to make a choice. You know, what what does our future hold? You know, will a, a war and a catch of regrets keep us apart or will a new shared vision reunite them? Yes. You say that you simply love to write and that you didn't even really start out having any idea about being published. So tell us a little bit about that journey for you. Well, you know, it was a 40 years, 40 years in the wilderness in biblical terms. I've written since I was seven years old. My mother said she thought that I had a special kind of a gift for that. She was a reading teacher. Our house was all about books. And she thought that she fostered that. And so I continued to write stories. My first one was at seven, and I continued to write as I went on. You know, I even wrote a sequel to like Gone with the Wind, which was just horrendous, you know, in my teens, because that was the big novel, you know, a long time ago. And then there was Dances with Wolves. I wrote a sequel to that. Not, not very original. You know, those those were big blockbuster films and uh, books. But I never stopped writing. But I never wanted to write for an audience. I just knew it was magic when I wrote for me. But it was very selfish. And my brother, who has been lived in Spain and all over the world, he came to visit me one day and I was pecking away. I, I just, I didn't even have a computer really. And he said, you know, you've, I've watched you do this for years and you are, I think you have a gift. So why don't you try to use it? It's a shame that you're not, you know, it could be a benefit to someone. Well, I never really viewed writing in those terms. I just thought it was kind of like a kind of a passion, a hobby, an intense hobby. But I took him up on it and I said, you know, I don't have any writing friends, no writing contacts, no literary agent. From what I've heard, it's very difficult to break into the market. This was before indie and became so popular when you could do it yourself. And I said to him, I'm going to prove to you how hard it is. And I was literally laughing because I thought it's just not going to work and he's going to see. Well, I submitted something to a Christian clearinghouse called the Writer's Edge that feeds your few chapters into editorial houses or publishing houses. And within a few days, I had several publishing houses interested, and I still didn't have an agent. And so soon after that, I was awarded a three-book contract. So he had, my brother, bless him, had the last laugh. (laughs) And (laughs) so I said, thank you, Chris. I still say thank you, Chris. And I'm very thankful. I think, you know, people come into your life that spur you on and, you know, open the window of your mind, enlarged my vision of maybe what I should be doing and alerted me that what I had been doing, writing in the closet, was actually quite selfish. So yeah. I, I, yeah. 
Definitely. We're not made to hoard our gifts, perhaps. And they they are a gift. If you've been gifted with something like a musician, I always wanted to be a musician. I can sing a little bit, but I can't play anything. And can you imagine having a gifted musician just go in a locked room and not share that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Look, you did mention about aspects of your own history that are not so well known. And there's another book, I I must admit, I just finished listening to it on audio last night, An Uncommon Woman, which was one of your more, more recently published ones as well. And that was a fascinating story about people who had been taken captive during the Indian Wars and maybe lived for a decade or so with Indian tribes before they then got under different terms, returned to white, their white families. They might be redeemed by paying a ransom or just freed in a, you know, bargain of exchange of prisoners, some way like that. And often they found it very difficult to settle back into European society. You've got a very interesting story built around the, the experiences of those people. Yes, it was very fascinating to me. Ever since I was a child, One of my heroes is Daniel Boone. You know, he kind of uh, became larger than life. You know, a lot that we know about Boone is is just fable. You know, he wears a coonskin cap. He actually hated a coonskin cap. He, you know, he he actually liked Indian, you know, Native Americans. Indians got along with him very well. He was adopted into a Indian tribe at one point. Lived with him for quite a long time. His wife gave him up for dead. He he really is my frontier hero. And so I think An Uncommon Woman, which you so graciously listened to on audio, is one of my favorite frontier stories because it does have that Native American theme. Daniel Boone's daughter was also captured by Indians briefly. He went after her and redeemed her before she could be assimilated into the tribe. But that's always been fascinating to me. And the one thing you brought up that I think is especially noteworthy is that these captives, once they had lived with with the Indians for a certain amount of time, they had no desire to return to the white world. Yeah, And I, I think that's... That says a lot about the white society at that time, because I think women were so oppressed in many cases then, you know, they were no better than servants in their own households, you know, it's just sheer drudgery. And the Indians actually had a fascinating system. They gave a lot of power to women. You know, they had tribal leaders who were women. They had warriors who were women and just outstanding women in these, you know, these tribal systems. And so... I it was interesting to create to have a woman named Katura in that story who never wanted to leave once she was you know she had a family and a life with that those Indians and and she really represents what happened no desire to return as yes. hard as it is to believe and so I'm trying to take an honest look at that and then in my author note at the back I gave a little more explanation as to the dynamics of that you know what it meant to be taken what it meant to be returned it's quite poignant and heartbreaking often yes actually you mentioned a book there that really sparked my interest although I probably never have time to read it but called white to red which goes into that and also there was a fascinating quote there from an Italian adventurer who saw the Delaware Indians 
in the mm-hmm. 16th century, the 1500s, before white men even arrived in America and spoke incredibly highly of what the, what the tribe was like and the relationship that they enjoyed just in, in the short visit there. It really made you, it had almost a feel of an Eden kind of community before the, the exactly. modern Europeans arrived, yeah. Exactly, and then the modern Europeans with all their biases and pride and, you know, just we made so many mistakes beginning at Jamestown in 1607, Um Speaking for Americans, you know, my own people, I I'm, was just horrified. I wrote another story about that called Tired, Tidewater Bride and revolves around that first, you know, colony in, in which we seem to do everything wrong with the Indians and when we could have made great gains. But yes, that quote was, like you said, it was like something out of Eden. I think it was an honest quote. You know, so much of what we read is embellished or revised history. But I think, you know, he was an Italian and he was coming to America with none, not the same prejudices we have. And I think before the Native Americans or Indians were decimated by disease and prejudice and things like that they were they lived you know in i think as idyllically as as possible in an unspoiled wilderness the wilderness can be an enemy but i think at that time before the whites came and took over and mowed them down in many respects it was quite edenic if you want to use that word which i do like we're taking a quick break and we'll be back with laura france very shortly We've just launched a new podcast feature, Encore, a monthly bonus of around 20 minutes where favourite authors who've already been on the show before talk about their latest book. Encore will preview exclusively on Patreon for two weeks before being released as a free-to-air show. First up this month is top-selling Kiwi historical author Deborah Chalinor talking about The Leonard Girls, a 1960s tale about two sisters caught up in Vietnam's turbulent war years. This episode is going free to air this week, so look out for it. And the next episode, Jill Paul talking about The Collector's Daughter, her dual timeline story of aristocrat Lady Evelyn Herbert and the uncovering of Tutankhamun's tomb in the 1920s, goes to binge reading on Patreon this week and then free to air in two weeks. Check out binge reading on Patreon at patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash the joys of binge reading to find out more and tell us what you think about the new Encore episodes. And now we're back with Laura France. Look, turning away from your specific books to a wider look at your career, is there one thing you've done with your com- the commercial side of your publishing? I mean, you'd obviously have kept writing forever more just for your own pleasure, but in terms of as a, an author career, is there one thing you've done more than any other that you'd see as having helped you get where you are today? Well, that's an, an interesting, insightful question. I think just being consistent. You know, you just consistently writing books that you put your heart into that you you research 
um, as thoroughly as you can. I think passion drives a lot of what I do. I'm absolutely passionate about the 18th century and all that was happening at that time. You know, I'm very grateful for our, our founders. There's a lot of history that I would like to change, but I think we can we can learn from our history rather than rewrite it. And I think consistency for me is key. Just trying to turn out quality prose and caring about my readers. Consistency and caring, I guess, are the two watchwords for me. Great. Great. Well, Laura, this is the joys of binge reading, and we are starting to come to the end of our time together. I always like to ask uh, our authors what they're reading at the moment and what they'd like to recommend for others, and particularly in the area of commercial fiction, uh, reading for entertainment and pleasure. What do you like to read for entertainment and pleasure? The best book that I read not too long ago, and it might be on your shelf too, is A Gentleman in Moscow by, by, by Tolls. He was... He's remarkable, and I since have learned that that's being spun into a series or a film or whatever. And But A Gentleman in Moscow is extraordinary. I've always wondered and have wanted to live in a hotel, and the Metropole Hotel in Moscow would, would be quite fine. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> he does it so well. And, you know, that's general market fiction, and that's huge. He's huge. I recently got Dolly Parton and James Patterson's new book, I can't recall the title. It's sitting over by my husband's chair, but Dolly Parton, who's a famous country singer, and James Patterson, who I James Patterson, I think he's the the number one selling author worldwide. They teamed up to do a novel. I think it's, you know, suspense kind of intrigue. But as far as the inspirational market that I'm so much a part of, I absolutely adore Liz Curtis Higgs books. She writes Scottish novels. She's been to Scotland multiple times, but Liz Curtis Higgs writes the most beautiful books. She also does a lot of Bible studies and things like that. And the other one is Kristen Heitzman. Her historical fiction is really extraordinary. And there's a series she did, I think, called Diamond of the Rockies, which is just on my keeper shelf forever. So those are the ones that come to mind right now. It's interesting. What is happening in that uh, niche of inspirational fiction. Is it growing? I believe it is. There's some, I see a a trend to make kind of cross over into the general market, which I think is good. I think, you know, I, I don't know what to think of it. I think, you know, there are a lot of people who don't want to read about God in a book. They don't want, they don't appreciate spiritual, you know, the spiritual threads in a novel, but there are a lot of people I think that are hungry for that. And want that. And I think when spirituality is well done and is true, I think it enriches a novel rather than takes away from it. So I think there is definitely a place in the general market for our kind of fiction. You know, we tend to have a small audience, and but A Heart Adrift has done well. And I think it might be my crossover novel. So I'm seeing, you know, wonderful things happening with that. And I'm very appreciative. I'd love a wider, wider audience. And you're certainly, you're having me here today is just a a wonderful way to expand that reach and get to know new readers. Yeah, that's great. I would think that I had a quick look on Goodreads and it looked to me as if quite a number of your readers 
are from the wider market. They're not necessarily looking specifically for inspirational books, but they're into historical fiction and they're happy. Right. And also often a lot of historical readers prefer light romance. They don't want a lot of heavy sexuality. They very much prefer yes. uh, not to have the foot too hard on the pedal where sex scenes are concerned. So that helps as well. If you're doing historical, I mean, it probably fits a bit better with the times as they were as well, but yes. it means that they can enjoy a book without having a lot of heavy sex intruding into the story. Oh, and I find that so refreshing. You know, it's just, you know, I've streamlined my own taste and to have a clean read is a delightful thing. And I think to follow up on that, I think most readers now, they're not thinking maybe mostly in terms of inspirational or Christian fiction or general market fiction. I think basically what a reader wants is just quality, well-written fiction. Do you yeah. think? Yeah. 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 If it's well-written, mm. they're not going to really, you know, kind of, they're just going to be, they're going to appreciate that if a book is well-written. Who said, I always find it too short, was that Jane Austen? <laughs> so yeah. yeah as you've been talking I think of that old saying about there aren't many atheists in a foxhole and yes <laughs> in yes. the times that we're living people maybe tend to think a little bit more seriously about life and death and everything don't they <laughs> oh and the pandemic has made that crystal clear yes I yeah. agree yeah mm. looking back down the tunnel of time Laura if there was one thing about your creative career that you'd change, what would it be? I think it would be to just embrace the gift early on and not resist it. And just, you know, I just be good to yourself. Realize what you've been endowed with, you know, your giftings are. And then really, you know, work at that. They say it takes 10,000 hours to, to master anything. But I love what you said at the beginning of our talk is that I th I think you're you know you said you've written prolific you're prolific with 10 novels and I've only written 13 I know I have author friends who've written 100 which just boggles my mind but I think you know, we just just embrace the gift. Go with it. You know, 10,000 hours writing is not going to make you a master in my book <laughs> because <laughs> there's always, like you said earlier, there's so much still to learn. And we're always an apprentice, never a master, I guess, in the in writing. But we can always be better. We can always grow yeah. and be better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Look, what is next for Laura as author? Looking ahead over this next 12 months or so, what have you got on your desk that you're working on or about to publish? Well, I just came through the release, of course, of A Heart Adrift in January. And the very day it released was the day I turned in my next novel, to my publishers. So it's quite the interesting timeline. You, you know, you get one in and one comes out. And so I'm anticipating edits. There's been a title for that one called The Rose and the Thistle for the Scottish novel that's coming out next January. It's also being, it's in-house with the art team. My publisher does beautiful cover art. So I'm excited to see what direction they take for The Rose and the Thistle. And then I'm writing a novel set in Acadia or present, you know, present day Nova Scotia, uh, another tr tragic bit of history about the Acadian expulsion in beginning in 1755. So I'm not Acadian, so I'm treading kind of lightly with that, but I'm hoping to represent that Acadian history, Canadian history as, as best I can. So it's going to be a busy year. I also traveled to France in three weeks and then Scotland. 
after that. So wow, that's uh, great. Yeah. Yes, I wish I could come over to you. I, my grandmother absolutely loved your country. Out of all the travel she did, she said your country was her favorite. So oh, I've lovely. never forgotten. Yes. <laughs> so when was the last time that you left the USA? You know, it was about five years ago, even before the pandemic. I just, you know, I, I tend to like to travel internationally and I've done quite a bit. But I was in my, I had a Kentucky cabin at that time and I just kind of settled in. It was my dream to have a cabin and we just enjoyed that. And then the pandemic hit and we couldn't do anything. So I think we're making up for lost time now. Yes. And I'm sure yeah. a lot of people can say that. Yeah, I'm very thankful that we're hopefully seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Yes. Yeah. Have you been to Paris before? Never. My brother, who is well-traveled, said that once that was his favorite city. And so I think Paris in the spring sounds wonderful, does it not? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? I I love uh, interacting with readers and I try to answer every reader personally, either when they comment on social media or if they send me an email or or private message. I have a Facebook author page, just Laura France Author. I also have an Instagram account, Laura friends to author once again. I have a new website coming up that I'm very excited about. It'll make access even easier. And laurafrance.net is my web home and it will stay my web address. So, you know, I have a lovely site now, but it's going to get even more updated soon. And I have a newsletter that I love to have readers um, jump in on. It's seasonal, goes out four times a year. And I try to make it you know, as beautiful and historic as possible. So I invite them to join me. I love my readers. They're the best. best, Reading reading people are the best people in the world. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful, my dear. That's great. We'll have all the links to those um, contact points in the show notes for this episode. So they'll be there forever online. Thank you. Wonderful to have talked today, Laura. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, I appreciate it, Jenny. All my best to you. Thank you. Next week on Binge Reading, Kara Wallace has written more than 20 books, including the New York Times bestseller To Marry an English Lord, which was an inspiration for the Downton Abbey TV series. Next week, she's on the show talking about her latest historical fiction called Our Kind of People, and it's set in the golden age of New York, bringing the class wars of Downton Abbey to the New York metropolitan scene. That's next week, Carol Wallace on The Joys of Binge Reading. That's it for today. Happy reading and see you next time.